The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. A bit later this week, we'll explore a new exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in London, looking at women connected to one of the most famous and male of British art movements, the Pre-Raphaelites. But first this week, the artist Dred Scott. On the 8th of November, the Chicago-born, New York-based artist will create an extraordinarily ambitious two-day performance work. 500 Louisianans in 19th century dress will create America's largest, if least known, slave revolt. Based on the German coast plantation uprising in 1811, it'll feature participants carrying muskets and axes and chanting freedom fighter anthems while following the original rebels' 26-mile march east along the Mississippi River. The 19th century uprising was undermined by a late-night encounter with the US Dragoons, a skirmish that will also be reenacted in the performance. But Scott's procession will arrive in New Orleans' Congo Square on the morning of the 9th of November, where, accompanied by musicians, the artist reimagined enslaved army will celebrate a victory that, should it have come to pass in 1811, might have drastically changed the history of race relations in the United States. The work has taken a year to prepare and a million dollars to realise, and as it unfolds, it will be captured by the British artist and filmmaker John O'Comfra. Margaret Carrigan, one of our New York editors, met with Dred Scott in our New York studio to find out more about this epic endeavour. Dred, I have to admit, the, the German Coast Uprising wasn't something I ever remember learning about in my history classes growing up, and there's very little mention of it even in the town that the rebellion originated in, which is Laplace, Louisiana. Is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's a small plaque noting it somewhere near like a Domino's pizza. That's what I've read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so why don't more people know about it, and, and how did you learn about it, and more to the point, what made you want to reenact it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the the first question is most slave rebellions aren't talked about in in America. I mean, this is a country that was founded on slavery and genocide, and it you know the, it is continuing to be based on exploitation and oppression and the particular logic of white supremacy, which sort of enabled and rationalized the the you know stealing of people and exploitation of their labor. Um, continues to this day, and so I think the you know people who run this country are are not eager to tell people, including the descendants of the enslaved, about the history of people fighting against that. And so that that I think a lot of slave revolts aren't known, but this one in particular, um, you know, if you know a fair amount about American history, in particular history of the African diaspora in America, you will know the names of of Nat Turner or maybe Gabriel Prosser or Denmark Vesey, who were other leaders of slave slave revolts, and you might know the name of like Harriet Tubman, who though she didn't actually lead a slave revolt was actually doing raids and and liberating people but this particular revolt the knowledge of it was suppressed although it was the largest slave rebellion of enslaved people in the United States um, at the time, uh, Louisiana was trying to become a state. The rebellion happened in 1811, and the governor, even though they knew that this sort of shook uh, the you know the Louisiana society to its very foundation, and the, the the enslavers were terrified of both that revolt, but also the possibility of others, they wanted to downplay the significance of it because it would actually sort of make their statehood application a little bit better, as opposed to saying that this is an ungovernable territory where the motor of the the economy is trying to to overthrow the the uh, society, and so it was sort of an, the initial press reports, which were covered as far away as London and and in New York and Philadelphia and elsewhere, were all based on the stories that the governor told, which actually was just lying about the significance and substance of it. And this revolt, the you know, the, it was planned for at least a year, probably years, and 
I've had, you know, even according to the general in the field, there were at least 500 brigands, which is how they describe the slave rebels, and they're marching in formation under flags. And so we know that it was at least that large, possibly larger by by the time it, it got even more going. Um, but I think the history is, you know, intentionally suppressed, and it's only been, you know, in a relatively recent point that people are starting to excavate this history. And, and the, the real first substantive accounting of this was unearthed by a, a book uh, that was sort of a, a people's historian, um, Leon Waters and Albert Thrasher and a couple other colleagues um, discovered this history. Leon had family history and a much older cousin who decades before told him that his family had fought against slavery when he was 10. But he couldn't do anything with that you know, when he was a kid. But when he got older, they, they did the research. They found trial transcripts and tribunal records. They found insurance claims that enslavers put out for the people they tortured and murdered afterwards to get replacements for the people that they'd put to death. Um, they found correspondences between the governor and the general and, and all these other records that indicated this was this huge rebellion. And it's something that should really be celebrated. These people are real, you know, real heroes, and it should be much more widely known. Definitely. And you're going along the same route that they traveled, and that's poignant in more ways than one, than simply that it was just where they walked. It's also, um, it traverses what's known as Cancer Alley Mm -hmm. now, which is a mosaic of rundown industrial towns in Louisiana where poverty and pollution are running rampant. And and the residents there, many of them who are descendants of the enslaved sugar workers that originally marched, um, they suffer from some of the highest rates of cancer in the country. So how is the slave rebellion reenactment also a call to action to rebel against the ills of colonialist and capitalist structures in the present? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm, first off, I'm really glad you pointed this out, and and I I think that you know it was important to understand that that sort of in 1811, you know, slavery powered the the economy of the region, and including the broader United States, but particularly that region. And the you know by the 1900s, you know, oil had uh, sort of taken over the, as the principal commodity in the region and the world. I mean, it's a worldwide phenomenon, and you know, we actually now know the both the 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 horrors and disasters and dangers posed by both forms of economy. I mean, it's really cool that there's now a burgeoning climate crisis movement to actually take on sort of the petrochemical industry and the burning of fossil fuels. And so it is something that, you know, that people could really learn from the the vision and daring and boldness of enslaved people trying to get free by seizing all of Orleans territory and setting up an African republic in the new world. How people apply that to today is a question. A lot of my artwork actually deals with how the, the past both sets the stage for the present, but resides in the present in new form. And I think that this artwork actually will be something that enables people, you know, who, you know, are, are being literally poisoned to death um, and have, these, as you noted, these really high rates of cancer to actually think, you know, what would it take to actually get free of of a system that is both killing them directly through cancer, but more broadly, um, you know, the foundation of the, the capitalist economy is oil and, and, you know, to actually get to a world where we could be fit caretakers of the planet and, you know, greet each other as fully liberated human beings. Yeah. Um, so the the citizens in this area, they're aware that you will be performing this, correct? Many are. I mean, we've done a lot of work in, you know, particularly the, the parish of, of uh, uh, St. John the Baptist, but also, the, you know, and specifically the town of Laplace. There are a lot of residents, city council members, civic leaders who are very aware and really are welcoming and excited and participating in the project. Gotcha. And and it's taken a ton of people on the ground there to really mobilize this and get it, get it up and running. Um, and there's a lot of moving parts to it, both mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. So, 
how who are, who's making all of these costumes? Who's supplying the weaponry? How are you finding participants in the project? I know you have a very specific way of doing that. Yeah, well, we're just going down to the the rebellions are us store and and, <laughs> and picking up a lot of people and and uh, uh, weapons. No, it's actually been a very collaborative project. I mean, this is you know. I am arguably a wellish known artist and people think of this as a Dred Scott project, but it's not. It's actually a community engaged project. I initiated it. It's true, but it is a project that involves, you know, hundreds of people at this point. And, um, you know, the, the, the costumes are being made by a, a team of people that, that started off with just their costume designer, but has spread out to sewing circles around the city and around the region and around the country, actually. I just got a, a, a Instagram direct message from somebody in Chicago who'd been part of a team of people to, that are doing these sewing circles. And sometimes in these circles, people who know how to sew are teaching other people that don't know anything about it to sew. And with the particular mission, you're going to either transform an existing modern shirt into an older shirt or you're going to make something from scratch. So our team is, you know, the costume department has really worked with a team of both skilled seamstresses in the in the region both male and female but also um unskilled people who just have a desire to sort of enable people to embody this history of freedom and emancipation and so that was collectively done the weapons are um you know if you don't have your own machete people <laughs> we're, we're supplying machetes and, and and muskets and things like that some of them are just absolute prop and some of them are going to be functional um in that they can fire black powder so that we can do a battle scene um there are you know the team is large that's working on this but it you know it's it's like doing a, a sort of a, a movie in a certain sense and so we are working with locations managers and prop designers and costume designers and and uh you know some of them come very directly from the community and others of them are people that we've hired as you mentioned you know part of the team is John and Comfra and Smoking Dogs and you know they're flying in from London to actually do this and and make sure that the 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 sort of documentation or film that gets made of this is is amazing. And so it, there, there are lots of moving parts and some people are trained professionals, but a lot of people are people that, you know, particularly in, in the community are people that very, feel very proud of this history and want it to be embodied. And, and particularly that something that I keep saying over and over, this is not a project about slavery. This is a project about freedom and emancipation. And a lot of people want to uh, have people understand that. And that's why they're, they're, you know, eager to participate in this, including to to make costumes and, and things like that. That's amazing. You said you're working with a lot of like the municipal governments as well. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, you know, you're passing through a lot of, a lot of different areas um, and essentially with a, a, a huge group of armed people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, especially people of color. And, and, and this is in a state that has historically imprisoned more of its population than any other. And of course, in the U.S., rates of incarceration are gallingly higher for people of color. You're probably undoubtedly expecting some unrest from some of the citizens. I'm going to wager white citizens in these towns. And how are you preparing for that? And how are you working with local authorities on that? You know, mostly I'm actually expecting that this project will be welcome, particularly I'm mostly concerned about how progressive or radical people and especially black people view this. And so far, it has been welcomed. The fact that the, the you know parish president of, of uh, St. John the Baptist Parent, the city council um, of Laplace, the, the civic leaders in churches, uh, you know, Pastor August at Rising Star Baptist Church, and others have very much welcomed this and are working with us so that we can actually go through communities in those regions that would really support it. Um, 
you know, is, is important. And then we are, you know, we are actually having to, because we're, you know, applying for lots of permits and stuff, we also have to work with the sheriffs in the region. And, and you know, overwhelmingly, there has been support and people, you know, willing and, and interested in bringing this, including some see it as, you know, bringing tourism to, and, and a good name to their community. And, and frankly, it would be very good if people thought of Laplace and, and that region as the place where a major slave revolt took place and wanted to come to see that as opposed to seeing all these damn plantations, which are... Um, Largely, they're you know they're slave labor camps and and people you know they're sites of genocide and people are coming to have their weddings and parties there and it's a completely upside down white supremacist view of history and so it's very good if civic leaders view oh yeah we should change that narrative and we should actually change how people understand what happened here and if school kids learn that that um, you know Charles Delans and Gilbert are, are heroes and leaders that should be followed not just because of you know some tragic event that happened but actually something that was very liberatory and emancipatory and and you know frankly had a much more bold view of freedom than George Washington or or Thomas Jefferson and and you know they wanted to found a society that had eliminated slavery at a time that that was actually the way large parts of the western world you know you know the, all the caribbean you know you know ruled by england and france or all of the you know north america by the united states and britain and so this vision was very bold so i expect a lot of people will welcome this that said this is america and it's america you know in in uh during the reign of uh, a president who when he sees uh white supremacists driving their cars into peaceful demonstrators says they're good people on both sides and so you know I, we are preparing for there to be um you know white people that might not appreciate this or people in general but specifically white people and and you know i think the main way that we're working to make sure that there are no confrontations is that we are doing town halls and community outreach and developing good ties with the community and so it'd be one thing for you know some random white supremacist to target a, a, a an art project that is led by a new york Artists. It's another thing when the person that they go to church with or there's their neighbor is actually participating and perhaps, you know, if it's a white person, maybe they've contributed to the sewing circles or maybe they've donated clothing or maybe they just say they support it and are going to look at it. And so we are trying to create some favorable conditions on the ground by working with the community. And I think that's the main thing. And secondly, I mean, it's, you know, this is a slave rebellion reenactment and there are not a lot of people that I think will go on record saying that enslaved people didn't have the right to take up arms to free themselves. And so, you know, if, you you know, it's one thing for people to say, oh, these Confederate monuments or that that's our heritage. I mean, that's upside down and wrong and for a lot of ways. And we could talk about that. But but to say that enslaved people should have remained enslaved and remain on plantations, there are not a lot of people in the modern era that will say, say that. And so I think that, you know, there's ways in which this project opens up a, a conversation about the past and the present that is very favorable for people who want to repudiate enslavement and the legacy of that. As, and it's not very favorable to people who are white supremacists. And so I, I'm actually not expecting a lot of resistance, but we are obviously working with various civic officials to to make sure that we have our permits and that you know there will be police on hand for road closures and things like that. Um, and we you know have a security firm and basically the 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 reenactors are we're doing our performance art project. And, you know, should there be resistance, we are not going to try and get into some debate with somebody. We're not going to hit them with a machete. Everybody is, all the reenactors are having de-escalation training so that we're not going to escalate any confrontation. And there will be a, a crew of people that will end up engaging people like that that are not officially part of the reenactment. So I'm actually fairly confident that people who want to see, see a, a true story of history and people that are really heroic fighting for freedom and liberation – 
um, you know, those are the people that will come out and see this. And, and, and if people are trying to undermine and attack it, I don't think that they will be very effective in that. Even if someone attempted that, you're no stranger to confrontation over the years. Your work has often invited a lot of it. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the installation you made when you were still a student at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago back in 1988. Uh, what is a proper way to display a U.S. flag? And that required visitors to decide whether or not to stand on an American flag. Uh, and the display aroused the ire of some Vietnam veterans who picketed and chanted the flag and the artist hang them both high. Um, and your mom even received death threats over it, which is insane. The, the then president, George H.W. Bush, even called the work disgraceful, which you've actually used that assessment as a, as a accolade on your website. Yeah, I'm proud of that. <laughs> um, and, Beyond that, you're, you're a self-proclaimed communist. During the financial crisis, you went down to Wall Street and literally burned money. Uh, and that ended up attracting the attention of the New York City police. And a lot of your work over the years has actually addressed issues of police brutality, especially after the Black Lives Matter movement really gained some steam. You flew a flag over Jack Shaman Gallery here in New York that read, uh, a man was lynched yesterday by police. So really, at the core of your artistic practice, there is a sense of rebellion against injustice at numerous levels of American society. So I think a broader question for me is how do you see and use art as a tool of revolution itself? Um, well, I, I mean, I think that my work addresses important questions confronting humanity. And, um, you know, what the U.S. flag and U.S. patriotism represents is a big question that people feel very passionately about, and and you know part of the response to the artwork was because of that. Um, you know, when you make work about murder by police, uh, uh, you know, a man was lynched by police yesterday, actually ties the history of um, you know lynch mob terror to the police and it posits them as the the inheritors of lynch mob terror, which you know the police are killing people at about five times the rate as people were killed at the height of lynching. And so I, I stand by that. But I think that these um, works are actually talking about these important fault line questions that the typical way the discourse is framed is that this is just normal. And I'm actually trying to get people to rethink what is normal and with an eye on getting to a world that doesn't have exploitation and oppression. And so, you know, when you talk about revolution, personally, I'm a revolutionary. I, I think that we need to get to a world without exploitation, without oppression, without class as a communist world. And I think anybody who's talking about resolving some of the things like murder by police or, uh, you know, the, the treatment of women or the, the being, actually being able to be caretakers of the planet and not actually escalating and exacerbating a massive climate crisis, um, you actually need revolution. I, I frankly do not think that anybody who's talking about trying to solve some of those ills and many others, the you know war, constant war and occupation with the U.S. and other countries lead. Um, it, it's you know it's not real. It's 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 you know it it actually leads people away from real solutions. While my personal view is that we need we need revolution, um, my work is not necessarily always about that. Um, and many people participating in slave rebellion reenactment probably would not agree with that assessment. They don't think that you need revolution. Um, and that's not the basis upon which I'm asking people to participate. The basis for which people are participating in what this work is about is that they want to embody this 
profound history of freedom and emancipation where people were trying to overthrow a system of enslavement and replace it with a, a new society that did not have slavery at its foundations and an actual historic event that obviously talks about the past and the present. I mean, we are walking set against the scene of modern-day Louisiana. You mentioned earlier that we will be walking through an area known as cancerality. So imagine 500 armed black people with muskets and machetes and sickles and sabers and axes chanting, on to New Orleans, freedom or death, we're going to end slavery, join us in 19th century closing with African drumming and flags flying and not an American flag, but flags that people might have used to... Um, Unite themselves as they prepared for battle, um, but that people of Africa, from Africa and Af African descent, imagine that set against oil refineries or set against grain elevators or set against trailer parks or set against mobile homes or set against Domino's Pizza Huts and with modern cars. And so it's that space that people can actually, this sort of clash of the past and the present is very interesting, I think. I think people will say, what the hell am I looking at? Um, and that's a beautiful space to be in. And so, it does pose, though, that this was this rebellion where people were trying to overthrow and seize all of Orleans territory, which is modern-day Louisiana, and set up an African republic in the New World, which earlier you said it would have changed race relations in the U.S. It actually might have changed the U.S. and the world. You know, if, if there was an independent nation on the border of the United States that had outlawed enslavement, you know, Texas might not have actually seceded from Mexico. Los Angeles might not have actually become part of the United States. Westward expansion might have changed. Slavery might have ended in other places in different ways at different speeds. And so this is a profound moment. But people actually looking at that, I mean, you you don't – again, people morally don't have to think that that there, it's not a hard leap to say that enslaved people have a right to fight for their freedom and anything they do to, to get out of bondage like that is just – and it does pose the question: well, what, How could they? How could they have done that? They were not forming a super PAC to try and um, sort of get whipped only on Monday through Friday or anything like that. It was an attempt to actually do the one thing that could have solved the problem, and that's ending the system of enslavement. Running away would not have done it. It would have been great and righteous. Becoming a maroon, you know, and and living sort of parallel in parallel society would not have actually ended the problem that people faced. They needed to end enslavement, and to do that, they had to seize territory, and so. How people process that, process that for the modern, I think it can open up people's understanding of how change happens and what is needed to do it. The people that were enslaved in 1811 felt that they really had a problem, that they were enslaved, and the solution was to, to end slavery. And so then they had to go about the hard, complicated work of figuring how do you lead a slave rebellion. And I think right now, modern day people often have our sights constrained. We think, for example, with like murder by police, a lot of people think that's terrible. Um, and then the solution is, well, oh, we'll have the more body cameras. And I've seen Oscar Grant get murdered on camera. I've seen Walter Scott get murdered on camera. We can go down the list um, of many, many other people we've seen. That is not stopping the police from murdering people. I'm glad that police are wearing body cameras, but I think that if the demand is to stop murder from police, then we have to do something different. And I think modern-day people can learn a lot about these 1811 rebels who had lived in a very difficult situation and yet had the most radical vision of freedom in the United States at the time. That's a bold vision that should be learned from. And whether that leads people to revolution or not, that I'll leave up to them. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been fun. Dred Scott's Slave Rebellion reenactment takes place on the 8th and 9th of November, beginning in Laplace, Louisiana, and concluding in New Orleans. To find out more, visit slave-revolt.com. 
We'll be back talking about Pre-Raphaelite Sisters at the National Portrait Gallery after this. Every age and culture has devised its own distinct form of pillow. Europeans preferred the soft approach. The ancient Egyptians and Chinese plumped for something solid. Many tribal peoples favoured wooden headrests. Not only practical, they also had a ritual function as a means of communing with ancestors, and the skill and intricacy of their designs were said to confer marital, financial and social success on their owners. They're also now regarded as masterpieces of art and design. The Graham Beck collection of African and Oceanic headrests offered at Bonhams, New York on November the 11th is the finest in private hands. As Frederick Backler of Bonham's African and Oceanic Department says, with their refinement of design, balanced proportions and unsurpassed elegance, these beautifully crafted pieces transcend function and assume the status of enigmatic works of art. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, remarkably, given that it was formed at the same time as the Pre-Raphaelites, the National Portrait Gallery has just opened its first ever exhibition dedicated to the movement. And it's a far from orthodox show, looking beyond the celebrated artists who first formed the Brotherhood and instead focusing on the women of Pre-Raphaelitism. Through paintings, photographs, drawings, prints and ephemera, it attempts to show the Pre-Raphaelite movement as more open, inclusive and diverse than has previously been understood. I went to the gallery to talk to Alison Smith, its chief curator, who, along with Jan Marsh, organised the exhibition. Alison, I was amazed to read that this is the first exhibition of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, or related to them, at the National Portrait Gallery. But you've not gone an obvious route, have you? You started off with a bang. That's right. Um, National Portrait Gallery was founded in 1856, so a few years after the formation of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And it houses some great works by the Pre-Raphaelite artists and artists associated with them. So it might seem surprising that it's taken this long to host an exhibition. But the MPG is unique and it focuses on biography, on society and history. So in a sense it's the perfect exhibition for the gallery in that it looks at the private lives and histories of individuals who are associated with the movement rather than as artists or art per se. So even though we do include a number of artists in the 12 women we focused on in this exhibition, others were not artists. They were managers or they were helpmeets or they were models or muses. So that's why it's appropriate for this particular context rather than somewhere like the Tate or the National Gallery, for instance. Um, Before we start talking about the women, can we just set the scene and, and, and I'd like to gauge the attitudes towards equality in amongst the men of the pre-Raphaelite movement. Can you tell us more about that? Well, in a sense, they were typical and atypical for their time. They were typical in that the women who were involved in the movement tended to assume a subsidiary or ancillary role. Women were still expected to bear children and to bear the brunt of domestic responsibilities, which explains why a number of women in this show, such as Georgiana Byrne-Jones, Effie Millet, started off as having artistic aspirations but those drop by the wayside when other responsibilities really took over but on the other hand the men were encouraging to women they did actually admit them into their studios sometimes on equal or near equal terms and some artists such as Joanna Boyce Wells her career she became quite famous or well known in her own day and a respected artist in her own right as much admired by men as by women by the time you get to the end of the century women are being admitted to art schools on equal 
equal terms to men. Women are active in the campaign for female suffrage. Some of them are wealthier than their husbands. They're the main breadwinner. So the situation has changed. So you could say pre-aftism was a catalyst for this wider social reform and change which was taking place. And how much did these sort of attitudes that sort of inform the movement, this idea of going back to the pre-Raphael era, influence the, those art, the male artists' views of women in terms of, you know, one thinks about the Arthurian legend of damsels and all that kind of thing. Did that influence at all the, the way that they treated the women in their lives? The chivalric ideal certainly did. It's the idea of beautiful women being loved by men, adultery, you know, think of Morris, Rossetti, Jane, that particular um, triangle, but also the love of beautiful women and men worshipping women. But also the medieval idea of the guild or the workshop, where artists worked on a art collectively you wouldn't have this division of labour or the artist working alone in their studio it's the idea particularly this was put forward by William Morris and his you know, um, collective the idea is that artists work together on an endeavour it's quite interesting that idea of artists working collectively has been revived today but the you know, pre-Raphaelites were amongst the first to promote you know, art as a collective ideal so let's start talking about some of the key characters in this, in this exhibition. We're in the room now of Effie Gray Millet, who's a really crucial character because she's directly involved in two of the absolute crucial figures in the sort of uh, orthodox brotherhood, isn't she? Yes, first of all, she was she knew and married John Ruskin, the art critic, who was a great proponent and defender of the pre-Raphaelite movement. And um, so she married him at quite an early age. People will be very familiar with the story that the marriage was never consummated, which led to it being annulled um, sometime later, which left her free to marry Millet, who she was introduced to through her husband. She got to know Millet through John Ruskin, who was a great admirer of Millet's work. But it was through the whole disaster over the marriage that you know, Millet never spoke to Ruskin again. They completely fell out, even though Ruskin continued to write about his work. But um, Effie was interesting because she was you know, educated, she was intelligent, vivacious. Um, so she worked with Millet on his productions in the sense that she would select the models, she would help create the costumes, you know, she collected costumes, she would um, often choose the subjects. You know, she was well-versed in literature. She spoke fluent French and German. She was a great musician. A lot of theme of music runs through a lot of Millet's work. That was suggested by um, Effie. And she also did all his correspondence and negotiated his prices for his works. At some point in the 20th century, she was actually blamed for the change in his style. Millet moved away in the late 1860s, early 70s from this very precise pre-Raphaelite Manner, to a sort of new looser, more bravura manner, influenced by Joshua Reynolds, Van Dyke, artists. The pre-Raphaelites would have dismissed as being slosh, but you know, he, he later worked in this what you call sloshy um, manner. And some people have blamed Effie for that, the idea that he worked quickly in order to bring in the money. Um, he ended up being one of the wealthiest men in the um, um, country. But it's, got, it's completely unfair to blame Effie for that. Millet, obviously, as most artists do, wanted to change and wanted to develop along different paths. But the, key, the key thing, that you, the point about what you're saying about Effie is, and the key point about this show, is to demonstrate that women had 
agency within the Brotherhood, didn't they? That's right. It wasn't just the image, it was the agency behind. So women were helped the men to um, craft the compositions, promote them, who was going to sit for them. And even as models, you can say the women had agency in that they would, you know, some how they're going to pose, how they're going to look, the message the image was going to um, convey and how it's to be received by the public. Now, talking about models, it's a great link to our next subject, which is Elizabeth or Lizzie Siddle, because before us is a sketch for uh, Ophelia, one of the most famous pre-Raphaelite paintings of all uh, by, by Millet, and that feature, the model for that was, was Lizzie Siddle, but she wasn't just a model, was she? No, um, Elizabeth Siddle would have liked to have dis- identified herself as being an artist over and above being a model, and indeed she started her career aspiring to be an artist. She actually approached um, a man called Deverell who worked at the Government School of Design with a view to becoming a pupil. And it was through Deverell that she met his son, Walter, and posed in her very first picture, Twelfth Night, which we're looking at here, where she's shown as Viola disguised as the page Cesario, looking in love at Duke Orsino. Um, so people realised that she had these wonderful... Um, she had these with great skills as an actor, actually, as a performer. And this is one of the reasons why Millet asked her to pose as the drowning Ophelia in his painting of the same, same name. And Elizabeth Skill was so serious about her art, she saw modelling as a form of performance almost, that there's the very famous story how she was posed in this antique dress in a bathtub to look like a figure drowning in a river, and the water went cold, but she didn't complain. She continued posing with his face of distraught expression on her face and became very ill as a result. But, but she like, didn't die, did she? She didn't die, she, she, caught, she caught pneumonia when her father tried to sue Millet to get him to pay the doctor's bills. But it's really a testament to her sort of skills as an actor. And indeed, up to the present day, people look at Millet's painting of Ophelia and they don't just think of Ophelia, they think of Elizabeth Siddle in the bathtub. So the presence of these models, we talk, early on we talked about agency, really shines through the canvas. But Elizabeth Siddle, as you mentioned, was an artist in her own right. It was through her association with artists such as Millet, particularly Rossetti, that she decided to embark on this career um, and abandon her modelling. And she studied with Rossetti, who was a rather idiosyncratic tutor, that he didn't, you know, he abjured everything academic. So some people describe Elizabeth Siddle's figures as being rather boneless, but that made them very innovative for the time. She has been compared to William Blake with these you know, floating um, um, figures, with these sort of heightened spiritual expressions. And her works, you can always identify Elizabeth Siddle um, drawing or watercolour because she tends to focus on one or two figures, usually two figures, and they usually involve a female protagonist. But rather than the female figure being an object for the male gaze, it usually shows a female figure in some very awkward or tense psychological situation. So, for example, behind us here, we have this wonderful um, drawing from the Ashmolean of the Macbeths, and you have Lady Macbeth seizing the dagger from her husband, um, and he was covered in blood after Duncan's death. And to convey the drama, you can see how she's actually layered the pen and the ink and actually scratched in so the white of the paper shows through to try and convey to the spectator the violence and tension of the um, subject. And you can see that she's really bought into the, to the ethos of the pre-Rathalite Brotherhood here, hasn't she? She's, you know, this, this is absolutely, it looks, it could be a medieval image. Exactly, yes. So you know, this, this medievalising, she's not concerned with anatomy of a poor 
portion is these densely crowded compositions, bright jewel-like colours and medieval subject matter as well. She was much admired in her own day. She was the only female artist to exhibit with the Priapolites at their 1857 exhibition. She found a patron in Ruskin and in the American dealer and collector Charles Elliot Norton. So people were talking about her. You know, she was you know, up there with the other artists. But of course her career was cut short by her untimely death in 1862. She um, married Rossetti um, became pregnant, had a stillborn child and suffered from postnatal depression and took to laudanum, to an opiate, and died of a drug overdose. And what we have behind in the case here, this is so Victorian, you know, when she died, Rossetti, as was typical of the time, cut off a lock of her hair. She had this beautiful red hair, and she's still famous for this, and he's sort of kept it, and it's, the colour has been preserved to this day. That's right. In the, in this, throughout this show, there are, we're seeing, of course, major works of art. We're seeing sketches, but there also is ephemera, which really amplifies the whole biographical edge to the show. Yes, and I think it's these little ephemeral details which really animate these women and make them live for us in the present. Alison, another really major model uh, for the Victorian artist was Fanny Eaton. Can you tell us more about her? Yes, Fanny Eaton is a real discovery. She died in obscurity in 1924 in an unmarked grave, but now she's popping up all over the place as people can see her in painting after painting. She was unusual in that she was of Afro-Caribbean descent. She came to London in the 1840s with her mother, who was probably a former slave, And um, we don't know who her father was, but she came to London, married a driver called um, Eaton, and had ten children and worked as a charwoman. So she was poor, and she probably took to modelling to earn a bit of extra money for her family. So unlike someone like Elizabeth um, Siddle, who we don't know would have been paid by the artist because she was part of the Pre-Raphaelite Circle... And Fanny Eaton would have been hired as a sort of professional model. I think she also worked for the Royal Academy schools as well. And artists selected her because they wanted her to be, be shown in paintings where there was a biblical subject or something near Eastern. She was seen to be exotic with her dark skin and dark sort of crinkly um, hair. So you can see in this room she's sort of cast in a variety of roles as an Indian ayah or nanny teaching children, the mother of Moses, as Queen Zenobia, um, the Libyan Sybil. So she often, quite interesting, takes on these regal roles. And I think the artists were attracted to her, not just because of her looks, but because of her bearing, how she looked very calm and dignified and she had this inner beauty as well as this external beauty so and I think this is also interesting about pre-baptism as an ideal, it's not just about redheads or women with corn coloured um, hair they were interested in all different kinds of beauty, um, different kinds of ethnicity, um, women from different class backgrounds as well so they saw beauty as being sort of a trans-historic and sort of transcultural ideal it's quite interesting, that, isn't it? Because at the same time, uh, one does feel slightly uncomfortable in this space because you realise there is a sort of process of othering going on here and, and, and in, 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 basically because she, had, she was dark-skinned that somehow she could re- represent the, all kinds of yes. other in every yes, kind yes, of scenario. Yes, yes, she's, no, it's quite orientalist. She's shown as the exotic and the, the other. But um, some of the images... You know, that her, 
appreciation for her as an individual comes through that. I mean, she was never sh- shown to represent a sort of, you know, a, a Caribbean woman at all. That was, doesn't, wasn't in their vocabulary. Um, but so that's true. The, you know, she does conform. You know, she was put in these sort of set roles. But in some images, I mean, including this beautiful, um, exquisite um, painting of her by Joanna um, Boyce Wells, Joanna Wells Boyce. This is um, you know, head probably of Queen Zenobia, and it's a sort of beautiful sort of portrait study in its own right. Really sympathetic. It, that's right. It, it, it looks like an artist is simply painting the model for, for who they are rather than yes. who they might represent. Exactly. Yes. Let's talk about models some more because you could earn quite a decent living compared to other working class jobs at that time uh, but yes it wasn't seen as a sort of it, in high society it was not well regarded is that right that's right sometimes I think modeling models like actresses it's like bordered on prostitution you know a woman sort of you know, putting herself in the public or you know before men who were not her husband or family members so it was seen to be a slightly risky profession this explains why some women would model in the nude others wouldn't they'd only be clothed there were different kinds of um, um, models but um some women went on to achieve a kind of celebrity status from through modeling and through um, the work they did for artists but not celebrity in the same in the sense we recognize it today because this is the era before the mass media some of these models were only really known within these sort of select circles. Now, talking about models that were known in select circles, we have probably what must be the most famous of all the pre-Raphaelite faces, which is Jane Morris. Tell us about Jane. Is Jane Morris um, interesting parallels with some of the other women in this exhibition, including Fanny Eaton. Rossetti compared her to Fanny Eaton, actually, and said they actually looked rather um, similar. Also Annie Miller and Fanny Cornforth, who are also working-class women. So she came, born in Oxfordshire, into a humble background. She was discovered by the Pre-Raphaelites when they went up to Oxford to paint the Oxford Union um, murals. They were struck by her unusual looks. And um, Rossetti in particular, also William Morris. She married William Morris, who was quite a well-to-do um, man. And um, they had two children. And she worked with Morris on a lot of the work for the firm. So she was developed. And Morris educated her, gave her an education. So she improved her accent and gained all the, sort of, the attributes of a sort of young lady and um, sort of branched out as quite a skilled needlewoman. And we do have examples in the exhibition, in the case behind us here, an exquisite little sort of evening purse which she embroidered in order to sort of, you know, fill this antique clasp. And she also practised calligraphy as well. You know, William Morris was a great calligrapher. So all these medieval arts, she was at one with her husband in wanting to revive them. She's probably more known to us for this triangular relationship she developed between her husband and Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who looked upon her as his muse, someone who inspired his creativity. And so we have a, one, a number of paintings in this exhibition, The Daydream, um, Proserpine here, in which she is shown in these mythological roles, but as a sort of figure who um, has this beguiling hold over the artist. And Proserpine is quite interesting because she was someone in mythology who was condemned to spend half the year in the underworld, 
half in the upper world and maybe that corresponds to her being you know, between two men between her husband and also between um, um, Rossetti but she's very um, um, distinctive in terms of her physical looks with this dark crinkly hair, pouting lips and sort of sallow skin very unusual looks which really sort of, you know, were, seemed to be very distinctive at the time and then there was this famous um, portrait session which was organised by Rossetti where he got the photographer John Robert Parsons to pose her in his garden at Cheney Walk and she's shown here in this dress she made herself in these um, rather melancholy introspective poses but that's the sort of quintessential Jane Morris look and she was known you know, within literary artistic circles as being this very unusual this unusual beauty, people often sought her out. So is she real? Is she an illusion? Um, but you can see how she you know, remained very distinctive throughout her whole life. Um, at the end of this room, we include uh, uh, this pastel study by Evelyn de Morgan, who was a very successful female artist who knew the Morrises well, and this shows her in later life with the crinkly hair now turned um, um, grey and with that same sort of new melancholy and tearized expression. What's interesting about what you're saying about Jane is that we think of her having her image sort of projected onto her by the men, but she had a role in constructing that. Like you say, she, she made her own dress for that portrait photograph session. And, and you know, in the image of Proserpina, she's wearing a dress which is not unlike the kind of uh, uh, fabric that she's that, wearing yes, in those yes, photographs. Yes. Yeah, so she was in a key part of the arts and crafts movement, also the aesthetic movement, in sort of making these dresses, being interested in jewellery, you know, creating her own identity, and also this languid look. Um, apparently, she spent a lot of time on the sofa. She suffered from various ailments, but then she had to sort of take to her shades along or, or so forth. And that added to that look that she was this sort of new languid um, 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 beauty, you know, closeted in these interior um, settings to be sort of gazed upon by her sort of male admirers. One of the interesting things about pre-Raphaelite work and what followed them in the Victorian period it, it, is that women are very rarely depicted naked and yet there is obviously also always this element of sexuality about these pictures. Do you have any sense of to what extent uh, the women involved were involved again in, in, in constructing ideas of sexuality in that period? I think so. It's also you know, women wanting to sort of break free from this idea of the sort of passive angel in the house. So they had their own sexuality, their own desires and um, appetites. And some of that comes across in some of the images. And we're looking behind us here at a painting by Byrne Jones, Phyllis and Demophon, which shows two naked figures. Um, this has been included in the exhibition because it can be read in biographical terms. It relates to um, an affair the artist had with a wealthy Greek woman called Maria Zambaco, who was also an artist. Um, the, in, in the end, Byrne Jones sort of had to leave Maria because he wanted to stay with his family. But it sort of shows a scene from mythology in which um, Phyllis, um, because her lover, Demophon, abandoned her, was turned into an almond tree. And when he returned, she reached out to forgive him or maybe to reclaim him. It's slightly ambiguous. And his expression is one of attraction but also repulsion. So the female figure is in the active pursuing role here. So maybe he was talking about you know, this woman, how she really had a claim um, over him and how she was quite sort of um, active in the development of that particular relationship rather than being you know, chased by um, him. And, and that's ultimately what this show aims to achieve, isn't it? That to, Essentially to 
show women as active participants in one of the most famous of all the art movements in British art history. That's right, and it's to get beyond that idea that preavitism is about men painting women. It's about women in the, in the picture, how they helped construct their own role, their own image, but also women as creators in their own right, and women who actually helped in the development of you know, their husbands or their partners' careers as well. So it looks at women on many different fronts, and I think ultimately it gives us a more complex and more nuanced picture of the pre-Raphaelite movement, helps us to sort of move beyond some of the stereotypes. Alison, thank you so much. Thank you. Pre-Raphaelite Sisters continues at the National Portrait Gallery until the 17th of January 2020. And that's it for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and if you've enjoyed it, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. We're also now on Spotify. You might also want to subscribe to the art newspaper itself. Go to theartnewspaper.com to find the subscription to suit you, so that you can read our reporting across multiple platforms. While there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Click the newsletter link at the top right of our homepage. And why not sign up for our new monthly newsletter called Market Eye, with comment and analysis every month from our market experts in London and New York. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julie Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Maggie and Dredd, to Alison, and thank you for joining us. Join us next week when we'll explore a new Marcel Duchamp show in Washington, D.C. And also listen out for a special bonus podcast early next week. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.